so many new faces. Uh, there was a time at one point where I knew everyone who's on campus, or a lot of people at least, but now I feel like, wow, there's a lot of new people. But I recognize a few familiar faces, and I'm really excited to be here. I just wanted to share with you two pictures that I got throughout the week as I was praying for you guys. Would that be cool? Yeah, so people hear from God in different ways, and I hear, I don't hear, I see most often through like pictures or visions. And the first picture that I got for you guys was this one that God gave to me personally a long time ago. I think he just brought it back to my mind. And it's this picture of a person just like extending their hands in worship like this, like straight to the sky. And then as they do that, they're, you see like their arms become the sides of a well that like enables them to just like be filled up with this like deep, deep well. But if their arms had not been extended in worship, there would be no filling. But you you see how the image works? And so that's one image that I got for you guys. And the presence here during worship was just like so strong. I was like, I'm so lucky to be here. <laughs> like, it's like, it's just so good. Like, there's clearly anointing that has been stewarded over many years at Busan campus for worship and prayer. But um, there is this just like longing of the Lord to fill you in a place of worship that no matter what your season is or what you're going through, that is his desire is to make your worship a place of filling. Um, and I know we've kind of been talking about that in some of your sermons as well. And then the second vision is actually of a dandelion and then like a dandelion being blown upon. And all the little seeds just like going everywhere. Um, and I definitely believe that a lot of the transition that you're going through, God was showing me like just taking, it's like it's, it's planting time. It's planting time and a lot of what he's deposited here has to go elsewhere. He's designed his kingdom to spread in that way. Um, and so I, I just want to encourage you guys that many of the farewells that will be happening over the next month are just God planting. It's something he has to do and he wants to do, and he's just going to bless you guys through as well for being part of stewarding those relationships that have sent those people. And so be praying for them as well as they go, you know, because they need it as they're being planted in any case. So, yeah. <laughs> Be all weepy, but it's okay if I sit. It's like a small crowd, so I feel weird standing. It's like I just want to have a conversation with you guys more. Like, um, yeah. So I've been going through your sermons over the past two months, and just looking at the passages you're going through. And there seemed to be this theme of God working in perseverance, um, how to praise God in the midst of trials, how to seek Him when things didn't seem to be the way that you expected or or wanted, and um, this, like, understanding of the love of God and how he, like, meets you where you're at, and, like, just those kinds of, like, wow, beautiful themes. Um, <laughs> I just got louder, so woo! <laughs> um, and in that, I was like, I, I kind of want to preach in the same vein, but just preach a little bit to where I feel like you guys were called and birthed, and uh my prayer is that as we preach and as I preach and we go through this passage together, that part of where you were birthed would be restored and revived in you. Um, and and I'll kind of like give you a picture of what that is. For me, like being in Seoul all the time, Busan was the campus of fire. They were the campus of like intercessory warriors and like just worshipers and like they went for God and like like and that Busan kind of has that spiritual heritage as well even during the Korean War, that as people prayed in Busan, troops got like moved back 
to the, where the border is currently. There was like revival taking place here, these steadfast people seeking Lord's face here that basically saved this nation into a democratic nation. And so there's this history of Busan of just like consecration and love for the Lord and seeking his face. And it's just like this beautiful relationship that's here. Um, and so I was always jealous. Like, I, I feel like that, that that's me. Like, that's where I want to be. And I just like need to be with my people, but I can't. <laughs> it's just like separation. Um, but to be honest, as a, as a leader and as someone who's been in the Christian faith for a long time, this past year I was like, don't want to be fiery anymore. I don't want to be an intercessor anymore. I'm so tired. Nothing that I've prayed for has worked out the way I expected it to. There are so many unanswered prayers. I'm, I am like petering out very quickly and just, just, yeah, God, I don't think I have anything left. And in the midst of a lot of transition, it's just gotten cloudier and cloudier. There's just been confusion that's come in. Being like, I don't even know what to pray for anymore because I can't even see where we're going. I don't even have a destination. Like, I don't even have a vision of, like, what you're bringing us through to. And, um, and then this past week, just this past week, God started to break me out of it. And just started taking it and giving me a vision again. And started taking out of all the cloudiness and just giving me peace again. And I was like, ah. I was very teary-eyed because it's just been so long. It's been so long since I've had that with God. And so I'm going to be preaching you out of something that's very fresh to me. Very, very fresh to me that I want to give to you guys. And I, during worship, I got the word evangelist. And I believe it's about this sermon. I could be wrong. <laughs> you know, you know, I could be wrong, but I believe it's about this sermon, and it's because I'm just starting to walk into the revelation of what I'm about to preach to you. And in the same way that you're receiving it, I feel like you're going to be part of carrying this message to others who are also feeling this. Because this is not a Busan thing. It's not a Korea thing. It's not a New Philly thing. It's happening around the world. There are so many, com- like, so many churches in transition, so many communities who are struggling, so many people going, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And this, I feel like, to your friends, to your Christian friends back home or like at schools, wherever, they need to hear what the word has to say about these times of confusion. And so with that, we're kind of going to get into it. So if you open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalms chapter 73. I'm going to get out my Kindle. Not, no no plug there. You know, this goes online. I'm not trying to. <laughs> okay. I'm going to read two verses, and then you're going to read two verses, and we're just going to go back and forth like that. And if you have different versions, hey, it's the, it's the Word of God. It's been translated a little bit differently. Just read with confidence. If we're not completely in unison, that is totally okay. Okay. 73. Psalm 73 is the correct verse. All right. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. All right, let's pray together right before we start. Father, even as this psalm says, it says that you are good to the pure in heart. It says that you are near us, even in our moments of feeling far away from you. And God, we thank you for that revelation of yourself in this place today. God, we know that every time we ask for revelation of you, for revelation of your word, that you never deny us, God. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, that this is a time where you happily reveal to our hearts who you are and what you're doing. And we receive it with gladness. We ask that you would bless this word. And Holy Spirit, would you guide me to speak according to your truth? And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone. So this opening verse says, Truly God is good to Israel. Psalm 73 is a testimony. There are different kinds of psalms, ones of praise, ones of a petition, ones of just ang- angst, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but this is a testimony. He starts out with the truth that he struggled with. And then he tells you of his struggle and why he struggled. But at the end, he comes to the conclusion of his search, that he actually finds the answer to his struggle. And he says, this is what it is, that God is near. And so before we get into all the details of verse to verse of what this means, we're starting with, he says, truly God is good to Israel. And he ends with the phrase, because God is near. Then that that has been the purpose of God in creation, is to be near to his people. And it is the sum and the end of all creation when Jesus returns, is to be near to his people, to be with his people. But even now that God is near, that no matter what is happening, that he's near. And so he begins with this truth. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
This word pure, it means to ones who are wholly devoted, like wholly consecrated. They have no other affection. They have nothing competing for their attention. They are simply looking to God. That is their direction. That is where their affections are turned towards. That is what it means when he says pure. And for most of us, that's we are here today because we've experienced the goodness of God in some way. This has been our revelation at some point in our life where we said, God, you're good enough for me to trust. You're good enough for me to walk into your arms and do life with you. And I'm going to take this adventure, even though I don't really know what it's going to look like, and I'm uncertain about a couple of things, but here we go. And we say yes to God. And that's why we're here. And for some of us, it was stronger than others. If you were like me, it was like, you say yes to God, and you're like zealous. You're like, okay. You know, like, all my music, like, gone. All worship music instead. You know, tearing down your posters on your wall, putting up scripture. Like, it's just like, you know, we're just changing, like, from black to white. It's like, and we, we get into this, like, very, like, emotive, like, zeal that, like, wow, I'm never going back. And we sing a lot of songs like that. Like, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I'm never going back. There's no way. And people insist that you, you, if you know the goodness of God, you can't go back. They'll insist that. But I'm here to tell you that that's not biblical. Right? But there's this, like, kind of environment in the church and in our spiritual walks that when we start to go back to the things we used to do, we're like, holy crap, I'm not a Christian. You know, like, <laughs> this seriously, but it's not the case. The Bible is full of stuff that people have gone back to, people returning to what they did before. Famous examples are David, you know, and he was the king of Israel, and, you know, the man after God's own heart probably one of the most devoted and in-love men in all of scripture, returns to the things that he did before he fell in love with God, right? And you have Peter, who's like, never will I deny you, God. You know, yes. And you're immediately, whoop, I don't know that man. (laughs) So sorry. You know, and so we have Peter as well. And scripture has no promise. In fact, the writer here in this psalm, he says, your heart It's translated may fail, but I'm here to tell you in the Hebrew, it's your heart will fail. They made this like poetic nuance. It's like may fail. It's not true. (laughs) Your heart will fail because that is the human condition. That is the human condition. It's designed to be that way. It's designed to fail because we have to recognize what's in our hearts. We have to learn how to direct ourselves to God. And we, frankly, live in an imperfect world where... Things aren't perfect, and so that's just the nature of the way things are. And so there's this, like, there is this longing, though, for perfection, and there is this longing to want to turn towards God. And so that, at least, we have on our side when things do start to go wrong, right? It's just that when our hearts fail, you know, we get to see what's inside of our heart. And most of the time what we find there is that there's an idol of some kind, or we find that we just don't believe the right thing about God. Those are generally the two sides of it. It's like, God, I thought you were always good. This situation, not good. So 
I think you're lying. <laughs> you know, like, what your word says about you is not true. Or we create our expectations and our desires as the idols of our life, our comfort as the idol of our life, you know, our goals, our successes as the idol of our life. And the things that we, even the good things that we pray for can become idols. And then when they're not fulfilled, we're like, you're, you said you were good. You said that you listened to my prayers. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if you talk to God like that, but that's how I talk to God. <laughs> he and I have a very honest relationship. Um, and so the psalmist who's writing this, his name is Asaph. So this is not a psalm of David. It's a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph was a man that David appointed to be before God every day and minister before the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, like God's presence. It carried God's presence with Israel. And he's like, you and your family, your four sons, your job from now on until you die is to minister to the Lord in songs of thanksgiving and praise. And in Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and um, chapter 25, you see that assignment given by David to Asaph saying, use harps, timbrels, cymbals, and make music of thanks to the Lord. So we have a man who's given up everything for God. His whole life is God. You know, like, and he's been commissioned to sing praise and thanks to God. And he comes to the point of going, my heart has failed. There's even this aspect of like, I'm constantly in the Lord's presence. I'm not even out in amongst a lot of temptations in the world. I'm constantly before the Lord's presence, and still my heart fails. And the reason he says for this is in verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He begins to lament, Lord, all these people who don't know you are satisfied and comfortable and successful and doing well, and your people are suffering. Your people are look as if they've been forgotten. Your people are struggling. And how am I supposed to believe that you're good if this is the comparison we have? How am I supposed to sing songs of praise to you when this is the reality? And he becomes envious. right? And it's this revealing of his heart that he's tempted to doubt the promises of God because of what he sees, which is the true nature of all of us. And he even goes to the point of like, in vain I have washed my hands in purity for you. In vain I have sought innocence. He's like, all of this consecration, all of this seeking you is worth nothing. He's asking that question of himself. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And we sometimes ask our, that question as well. When we, we're sowing into a church that we don't know if it's going to last that long. We're sowing into relationships, believing for restoration in our families. We don't know if it's going to happen. And we go, God, is it worth it? This time that I'm setting aside for you? Does it even matter? Like, so-and-so's family is doing just fine. They're not seeking your face. But here I am, and it seems like my prayers go unanswered. It seems like I don't have the evidence of a good God. So this, this is the situation that he's in. And there's this really cool quote from the Tyndale commentary that I saw. 
I was prepping the sermon that I would like to read, if I can find it. It says, the state of the heart determines whether a man lives in the truth in which God's goodness is experienced or in the semblance of truth where the fact that if it goes ill with him is confused with the illusion that God is not good to him. Unfortunately, that's just the way we're wired. It's just the way we're wired most of the time until we learn to reset that belief. What are we believing that's actually the semblance of truth that we perceive to be true? Earlier we were singing like that God is God. He's holy. He can do anything he wants. He's still God. It doesn't matter what it looks like in my present. He's allowed to do anything he wants because he's God. So does he have to be good to me in the way that I think is good? Does it have to be comfortable for me? Do I have to have the answers? Not necessarily. And so here we are in this conundrum. But let's just read some scripture before we go on. Verse 4 and 5. He's giving this picture. He's like, they have no pangs until death. He's like, they're perfectly healthy. They're not in trouble as others are, and they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Basically, they don't have a plague. They're like, they're not affected seemingly by disease or sin or, or poverty. He says, because of this, they're prideful. And they, he's like, they even scoff you. He, verse um, 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They feel like they're untouchable. He's like, they set their mouths against the heavens, even against you, God. They don't believe in you because everything goes well with them. So my first question to you is, would you like everything to go well with you to be in the situation of these people? Everything goes well with you. You're comfortable. You have a healthy body. Nothing is wrong. And so that you get in that place of comfort and pride and say, scoff at the heavens. Huh, I'm fine on my own. No reason to pursue God. No reason to know him. Sometimes I think affliction is one of our greatest blessings because it allows us to say, I need God. And he makes a very clear point in this psalm that it's actually part of God's judgment against the wicked to let them be fattened in their iniquity, to allow them to be comfortable in their sin. It's a very like, challenging part of scripture, but it's true. It's exactly what he says here. Verse 7, I want to illuminate for you a little bit because it's not translated well in most versions. I spent hours looking at this in the Hebrew going, I don't understand. So I'm just going to give you my best translation of this and let you know that there are two ways of looking at this verse. The first way is to translate it as their eyes like bulge or swell from fatness and that their imaginations run about or that their imaginations are fulfilled, which basically means like they just continually feed on all their comfort and their sin, and they get to imagine and do whatever they want. That's one way of translating it. The other way of translating it is their injustice is fat. Like there's so much injustice that it's just like swollen, and that they fulfill all their intentions, that they have the say to do whatever they want. It's kind of two separate translations, but I think they're very helpful as we continue through this passage. So they're basically, they're living without consequence. 
living without consequence. And he, in the next verse that's like further down, and we'll get there, he goes, if I had done that, God, if I had done that, all of Israel would be in trouble. He's like, you've made me a minister before you, night and day. And if I go out and sin, we've led Israel astray. Why would you make my life of so much consequence? And they can do whatever they want. So he's in this comparison. And sometimes we feel that way. Like, as Christians, why can I not mess up? You know, like, why does my life have to be a testimony to other people? Because now I'm constantly accountable. You know, like, we mess up anyway, right? We have to say sorry and do forgiveness. It's a very humbling experience. You know, that's the point. We're meant to be humbled. But there's this dissatisfaction that he has, like, why do I bear the weight of consequence and they do not? And I'm building this up. And I'm just like, we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. And so here he is. He's like, this final question in verse 11. Oh, sorry, verse 10. He says, their people turn back to them and find no fault in them. I want to make this very clear that this is probably the worst translation of this verse that I found. And this is just a problematic verse in general in translating this passage. It's very, very difficult. And again, there are two sides of viewing this verse. First, that some kind of people, meaning wicked people, resort to this, and even they drink the abundant waters for themselves. So it's talking about greed. I don't agree with this translation, even though he's talking about the character traits of wicked before. I don't agree with it. Here's why. The other translation is, therefore, God's people, God's people return to this place and the waters of abundance are drunk by them, or literally the word to ring out, or wrung out by them. I'm pretty sure that this is the correct translation because it basically is the image of people drinking their own tears. God's people drinking their own tears. The tears are being wrung out of them by their oppression and now they're just, that's, their food is just drinking their sorrow drinking their despondency and their depression while everything else is going on around them. And the reason for this is in verse 11, the wicked respond to them and go, how can God know what we're doing? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Like, why would you seek God at a time like this? You're drinking your own tears, but it's not doing you any good. That they're engaged in this not only doubt of their own hearts, but a doubt from the world around them that's encouraging them to go, it's not doing you any good, this whole seeking God thing. It's not worth your time, honestly. So that's the message that they're getting from the doubtfulness of the sin of their own hearts and then the doubtfulness of the world around them is this war on their spirit. Is my life with God worth it? Is my consecration to God worth it? And that is the question that the believer begins to ask. He even goes, is there anything to be gained from seeking God the Most High? Is there anything to be gained in interceding for my family in this season? Is there anything to be gained from pressing on and staying in the place that God has called me to stay? Is there anything to be gained in following God in the place that he's told me to go? Or even just being frozen in the place that you are in life, knowing 
I can't make any decisions right now. I can't go anywhere right now. I can't do anything because I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. But here's the thing. All of this that he's describing up until this point, his his just mourning of like, in vain I have pursued the Lord, and the world is not pursuing you and doing so well. In the midst of this, what he's struggling with is a comparison. He's struggling with a comparison of what he's going through and what other people are going through. It's based on circumstances. It's based on desire. It's based on perceiving lack. That rather than focusing on what he possesses, he focuses on what he doesn't have and that others seemingly have. And this is probably the biggest thing that we get caught up with in our lives, is perceiving, I do not have this, and dot, 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 I am discontented now. I do not have this that I wanted from God, and I don't know this that I wanted in my workplace, whatever, and now I am discontented, and I feel like God is not good or hasn't heard me. There's this comparison, this sense of lack, drives us away from God, but it's not even valid because God is someone who can't even be compared to what we can possess on this earth. There is no comparison. Putting God and the things of God on level with comparison to the things that you can have on this earth is the first lie of the enemy towards you. There's like as soon as we accept, I can compare what I have now compared to what I'm going to have with God. No comparison. It's just, just, no. You can't do it. It's like comparing fruit to trees or like, I don't know, rocks to sky. Can't, you can't do it. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Something finite to something eternal. You can't compare it. So this is the, this is the first trick of the enemy to go. Here's a sense of lack. Compare God to everything you see in the world. Put them on equal plane. And this is where the enemy comes in to bring confusion. Now we have a cloud. We've accepted something. We've accepted a comparison that's not true. Now we have confusion in our life. That's how, like, that's how confusion works. You either sin, do something wrong that you don't repent of. You get to be confused about your moral values and your direction and your purpose. Or you start to believe something about God that's not true, and now you're confused. The two ways that confusion comes into your life. So if you're feeling confused, figure out which one it is. Uh, Seriously, (laughs) I have to do that all the time. I'm like, like, it's not just you guys, it's me too. And so you have confusion in your life, and now Mr. Devil himself just comes right up to you and is like, so... I know you've been thinking about how you don't have these things, and I can give them to you. It's not new, guys. Did it in Genesis, right? But we fall for it every time. So, um, Eve, you know that God said that you could not eat of this tree, but you can. So he's withholding something from you, i.e. lack. So, I'll tell you what. You can eat of this tree, and I can actually give you something more that God is withholding from you, which is knowledge of good and evil. And Eve's like, wait, God's withholding from me this 
fruit, which is good for eating, and God is withholding from me knowledge, good and evil. Now here, the devil is making a completely invalid comparison. It's not a comparison because Eve doesn't know that she already has dominion over the entire earth. And what knowledge is of good and evil appears to be dominion because it will allow you to make decisions on your own. It's equivalent to dominion. So what he does, it goes, Eve, you don't have dominion yet because you don't know between good and evil, but I can give you that. And she makes a trade. She makes a transaction with him. Okay, I want dominion. I want the knowledge of good and evil. I don't like the fact that God's been withholding this from me. So yeah, I'll take that. But every transaction requires something of you. It's like, I'll take that and you just lost your dominion, but I'm not telling you that. And finds out later, like, holy crap, I just gave up dominion so that I could have knowledge of good and evil. Does that make sense? It's like a way of, like, it's not the way it's usually described, but that's what happens. She has dominion over, like, Adam and Eve are created with dominion over the entire earth. Being able to make a decision on your own, having knowledge of good and evil, also allows you to, like, do what you want. That's dominion. And there's this trade. He does, the devil does that to us in our lives all the time. You want joy? I can give you joy. So we seek after something that we think is going to give us joy, and we pursue that thing, and in pursuing that thing, we actually find that our lives are falling out of joy more and more, so we've actually given up our true source, true like access to joy by pursuing that thing. Right? Does it, does it make sense? And so we just get into more confusion because you're like, I thought I thought this would satisfy, but it doesn't satisfy any longer. We get caught in like sin patterns. We get caught in like old habits. We return to the way of the things that we used to do simply because we wanted something, but we chose to seek it outside of God because the devil presented us with a counterfeit. He presents us with something that looks very similar, but in the end costs us the real thing. And it all comes from feeling that we've lacked something in the first place. And so this is like, there has to be a solution, right? There has to be a solution to this. Because just like Asaph, we fall into these places where we feel like we lack. We feel like we're not getting answers from God. God's not near. And we start seeking after the things that we used to do just to try to feel like we're seen, we're loved, we're okay, we're filled with joy. And he gives us the answer in verse 16. He's presented this problem, then he goes, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned it all. He goes into the sanctuary of God every day. I wonder how many times he had to go into the sanctuary of God before he discerned the end. I think in our generation, we, we want an answer so quickly. We're the microwave generation. Just stick it in a few minutes later, take it out, and eat it. You know, like, 
but I'm sure he had to pursue and continued to pursue and said, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and finally this time in the sanctuary of God, he opened my eyes. He gave me the revelation. And he starts to speak about an actual, like, end of things. What he's now talking about when he goes from 18 to almost the end of the, of the chapter, he's talking about in the end, whether I see it or not. Jesus, who will return, at that, you know, that end, all injustice will receive its full due. He's like, the slippery will fall. Like, you will destroy them in a moment, sweep them away. Like a dream or like a vision, they'll just vanish. He goes, they may have their satisfaction now, but that's their reward, is to be comfortable now. Because at the end, that's not the way it's going to be. And he kind of reflects me. He's like, even though I'm not enjoying comfortable things now, he's like, I know that in the end, I have your presence forever. But what's so beautiful is that when we get to verse 21, he goes, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, when I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. He's like, in the midst of this process of me running away from you, of me being frustrated, of me feeling like I don't, like I can't find you, I can't feel you, you're not good. In the midst of my doubts, I'm angry at you and I'm frustrated and I'm walking in my sin because I'm rebellious, you know. He said, I was like a beast. And in many ways, he probably was like, I should have been treated like a beast. But he says, nevertheless, Verse 23, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me with glory. We're like, it's like the gospel. This is pre-Jesus, but basically it's like, you're still with me here and now, and you're holding my hands, and you're receiving me into the glory at the end of all things. Whom have I in heaven but you? And that puts him back into this place going that he, the love that he had at first. I have nothing on earth except for you. Everything that I desire is you. Because he's been through this struggle. And there's something so beautiful about this in like the actual gospel. right? We who deserve nothing, no kindness whatsoever, receive Jesus coming near to us to walk with us. And that that has never changed since the beginning of time. That in the garden, God was walking with them. That when he, you know, they fell and were cast out of the garden, he brought his presence back soon enough. You know, there all these men and women in the Bible who he marked his presence with. And then Jesus came and was like, okay, I'm here to walk with you no matter what you look like, no matter how far you've tried to push me away, no matter what your misconceptions are of me. I'm still here for you. I'm still here to walk with you. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit, so now we have his nearness always, whether we feel him or not. And so this is the beautiful, like, redeeming heart of God. It's like, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter 
whether you know that I'm with you or not, I'm still with you. And that's what counts. And so in the middle of our struggle, we could be doing the things that we did before we knew God. But we have this memory. Somehow we have this memory of like, that's not as good as like praying would have been. That's not as good as worshiping would have been. And we have this memory. And it's God's mercy saying, I'm still with you. And it's him putting that hunger in our hearts saying, I'm better. I know it's hard to seek me, but I'm better. And we have this mercy of remembrance, of knowledge that he's good. And so when we're in that place of confusion, when we're in that place and we don't see the future, my exhortation to us is three steps. Enter the presence of God repeatedly, continually, and recognize what's been causing confusion in your life. It could just be, you know, a temporary unknowing. And I'm not, I'm not saying, like, not knowing the future is confusion. I mean, confusion is, like, when you don't know your identity, you're confused about your purpose, you're not sure whether you've been praying for something is futile or worshiping God is worth it. That kind of confusion about values and identity. You go to the presence of God repeatedly and then you seek what has been off base about God. What was it that I was believing that was wrong about you? Where in my heart is there unbelief about who you are? Find that thing. Put it behind you. I'm not believing about that anymore. I want to believe in who you really are, who you, what you truly do. And then, having done that, to remember the end of the story. At the end of the day, everyone could prosper. The rest of my life could be trial after trial after trial. But the end is going to be worth it. And in that place, when we say, in the end, it's going to be worth it, I'll see you fully as you are and be fully known by you and there will be no hindrances whatsoever. Like never again will there be hindrances in my life to knowing you. We acknowledge, begin, we begin to acknowledge that God is our best gift. And the place that we started in of lack that led to us trading off the things we really wanted for counterfeits, that just starts to dissolve because we now remember what we actually possess in Christ. We begin to have the fullness of joy in that again. And we're restored to like the life of like, God is all I really need. He's all that really matters. And like, I'm so excited to be in this journey with him because no matter what I go through, he is near me. He's near me and he wants to be near me. And that's Asaph's final confidence that he gives in verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near to God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It comes from realizing that God is my highest good. He's my highest treasure. And in the end, he's working everything out. And so there's this picture that I had while I was preparing this sermon and I was just in the place of like God like I want to be a faithful bride like I want to be a faithful servant 
I want to be a loving son. Like, I want to be everything that I have opportunity to be in relationship with you. Like, I want to be a friend. Like, you've promised me these things. You've promised me that I will be a friend, that I am a son, that I am your bride, that you love me. Like, I want to be living the reality of that. No matter what I go through, and God, to be honest, I've struggled for months with the question of, is it worth it? And like drove me to the ground. Is it worth it, God? My health is failing. I'm stressed out. I can't sleep. Is it worth it, God? And then it's like this picture came and it was like the last days and like I'm with Jesus in heaven. Jesus just looks down at me and goes, was it worth it? Yeah. A hundred times, yes. Nothing will matter at that point. It won't matter how much trial I went through or what prayers I saw were answered or not answered, but that I got to be near to God and I got to know him. And that in the end, he had his say, he had his victory, and he got to bring me completely and perfectly near. And it just like restarted my heart again. I was like, God, I don't care how much it's just awful. I don't care how much this season of like goes on for because I'm going to believe what you say about yourself. I'm going to believe what you say in your word and I trust that it's going to be worth it. And that's just what I think the psalmist is trying to say through this psalm. Psalm 73. God is good near to the pure in heart, and that in the end, it's worth it. So I want us to take just a time of like, a little bit of like reflection um, before the Lord. And if we can have like either guitar or piano, um, like backing it up, that would be great. And like, I want us to be able to, not only today, but every day from now on, look to God and go, what was I buying from the devil that I could have been getting from you? What was I seeking after in the world that you promised me from your kingdom? Like, what kinds of trades was I making? What kind of a transaction was I making where I was just buying a counterfeit that you've actually given to me access from you because that place in my heart is a place of unbelief. That place in my heart is a place where I believe something incorrect about you or I would have gone to you first. And I want to ask the Lord, like, God, will you reveal my heart? Where have I been drinking from just boiled wells? Where have I been going to just dirty cisterns instead of turning to water of life found in you? The Holy Spirit will bring something to mind, but if he doesn't, if you're in a place where like things are good and it's easy to believe God, then just spend your time in thanksgiving. And we're just going to take maybe 10 minutes be before the Lord because he wants to be near to you. He wants to be your well. So Holy Spirit, as we spend this time in your presence, God, we thank you that you're here to speak. 
We thank you that you're here to reveal. We thank you that you're here so that we know your desires. God, and that you become our wells, Father. So would you refresh? Would you renew? Would you restore? Would you revive in this place, God? We thank you. Thank you for your love.